Welcome to the American Soldier Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of sacrifice and the unwavering spirit of those who have served our nation. Today, I'm honored to speak to retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Scott Mann is a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret with extensive combat tours in some of the world's most challenging places. But he's also a storyteller. He's the president and founder of Rooftop Leadership, a New York Times bestseller, with his recent book, Operation Pineapple Express, the author of a powerful and poignant play, The Last Allergy of a Green Beret, which pulls back the curtain of the unseen cost of war. And most importantly, he's a man whose greatest pride is the legacy he builds with his family, his 26-year marriage, and his three sons. It's an honor to have Scott Mann on my show. Yeah, so we did a, a play went really, really well. It was really powerful. A lot of lot of veterans in the audience from the you know Tampa right there at Special Ops Command. Um, a lot of Afghans in the audience and, and a lot of Gold Star families. Um, and there's, that's always just the coolest thing to me. But the, the 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 other thing we did that was really different was I had written a coda for the the abandonment of our allies, and it, I, it came to me you, kind of. What, uh, what you wrote a what? What is a coda? You know, like a, this kind of a a, a surprise ending. Okay. Uh, right. And um, I hadn't any idea what I was going to do with this thing, but it came to me earlier on in the year. Basically, the setup was, you know, my character's son, it, the whole thing's about his son joining up and fighting the war he couldn't finish. So um, with the abandonment, I, I, I keep asking myself, what's going to happen when our kids have to go back over there? And and they will. They are going to have to go back over there. You what's think so? Happen? Huh? You really think so? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's just, it's a matter of when it's not a matter of if we'll that right now there are, um, I just interviewed, uh, an Intel analyst yesterday and so far in Afghanistan, since the abandonment, I think they've trained close to 30,000 suicide bombers. 30,000, 30,000. There's six camps for, there's six camps. And I think three are operating with complete autonomy for suicide bombers. They're just cranking them up. Um, and yeah, I, I think they're... You think, you think any of them are here? I do. I do. I think my... just And this is, you know, this is a lot of just kind of my own uh, synthesis based on what I'm seeing. But um, I think that um, a lot... What we saw on October 7th is more of a harbinger what happened in Israel is more of a harbinger for what we're in for than September 11, 2001. I think you're going to see a more localized, horrific, distributed uh, attack in the United States that um, is where we live, work, and play versus symbols. Wow. And I think the origins of that, and, you know, these guys, ISIS and AQ, they want to they prove that this attack's bigger than the last one. They don't want to come in second. Um, so, yeah, I do. Um, but I asked myself, all right, I, I've already kind of moved on past that, honestly. Like, I, that's just, a, to me, it's a foregone conclusion it's going to happen. And then how will we respond? Most likely, to me, it's the big question. Like, how will we respond and what what kind of situation are we putting our operators in when they have to go back? I mean, you, ima you imagine these, these families that were abandoned, their families have been executed. They've been living on the streets and these guys are trained, man. Like they're yeah. not, they're, they're legit. And, uh, what's going to happen when our young special operators come eyeball to eyeball with the commandos they abandoned. 
So I wrote a scene, a, co- a, a surprise ending where we did the, you know, we did the, everything. We did the talk back, lights went down. And then we said, so we have, you know, a lot of you on the road have asked us about what's going to happen in Afghanistan and did it matter? Was it worth it? And so, um, we did a scene with my son as a special operator and an Afghan actor out of LA named Fahim Fosley. And they confronted each other as my son's rolling up his parachute, you know, and it was pretty intense, man. So that was a long, long story. I didn't mean to get into that. No, it's okay. How long did it take? Well, let's go to some of the, I have a couple questions that I want to get into. I mean, well, you bring up 9-11, you know, I, with the debacle of Afghanistan, I know I felt it because I was there at the Twin Towers when it happened and mm. I saw them come down with my own eyes. I ran out of them. Um, it's kind of what basically inspired, that started the spark for the American soldier. Um, mm. And so I felt betrayed. So I can't even imagine. Um, I remember when, when it was on the news, I felt like I was watching 9-11 again because I was on the news and I couldn't stop watching it. And my wife was like, you know, what are you doing? You know, I was like, I just, I, you have no idea. This is a disaster. Um, so if I felt that, I can't even imagine what you and your brothers and, and sisters who fought over there and all the families. And I also, you know, I, I, I felt the families that I had been getting connected with over the years with the play and understanding their pain. So with when we withdrew out of Afghanistan, I thought about them. I thought about 9-11. And it was like just this hurricane of, of, of weird emotions, you know? And so, um, I just, you know, I wanted to share that there are Americans that I know I felt, I felt the betrayal and it, it bothered me. It still bothers me knowing that, that we pulled out that way. So I'm anyway, I, I don't really have the words, but I pray. And I, I, like I always say, I thank you for you guys for your service. And, um, but tell me, let's, so people who don't know you, um, you wrote this play last out elegy for green beret. I mean, what gave you the idea to write the play? That's what I want to know. And did, did I want to get into some of the, cause I know, you know, that we, I've heard you many times talking about the military stuff, but I want to know, like, let's talk about the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the play is so powerful. So did your wife go, are you kidding me? Like you doing what now? Are you going to write a play? Um, yeah. Can you not sit with a bourbon on the backyard and just chill? Yeah, it was like the ultimate midlife crisis, man. You know, uh, writing a play and then deciding at age 50 to learn how to act and perform, you know, the protagonist role. So it was a double whammy for my wife, Monty. And I honestly, though, I think my, my transition from, you know, two decades of being a Green Beret and a lot of combat and the impact it had had on our family, she had already seen how dark it had gotten for me. And so pretty much anything that lit me up to her credit was let's, let's do it. You know, I don't care. You know, if it, it lights you up and it gets you moving out of your bathrobe and actually, you know, shaving every couple of weeks, like let's give it a try. Was it that bad for you? Oh, I, it was standing in a closet holding a 45 bad. Um, you know, it, it got really, really bad. Uh, 18 months after I transitioned, it got to the, you know, the lowest bottom. What was the hardest part? Getting out of the military and losing that structure or or just dealing with PTS? Well, I mean, they kind of go together. And for me, it was, it was it was this, you know, I'd wanted to be a Green Beret since I was 14, right? So, I mean, it was all I knew. It was all I understood. And it was my identity. And when I left that world, 
I left my identity. I left my, you know, when I retired in 2013 and they just, there just wasn't a lot out there for you, for folks, for guys, girls leaving the service to, to realize that, you know, a lot of that stuff, you don't have to leave in the team room. It comes with you, your identity, purpose, your value, you know, those are actually, you get to keep those. Those were not issued to you. Uh, and, and, but I didn't do that. I walked away and, and really just kind of left all of that behind me, shut the door on it and, and started to try to become what I thought civil society wanted me to become, which was an absolute friggin' train wreck. Um, and you know, I got a job as a contractor, all that stuff and, and managed it on the outside pretty well. I was making good money, but just the loss of identity of purpose was really profound. Um, and then you couple that all the stuff that I had pushed down, like so many of our guys and girls do, you know, I pushed down the survivor's guilt, the, the PTS, the, the moral injuries. And, and when you get into that space where your identity is really in question and your purpose is wavering, that stuff just comes, you know, that, that stuff just comes flooding in. And, and so it was kind of a perfect storm, honestly, that built up over 18 months until, you know, um, I started having ideations that were super, super dangerous. And it was actually civilian mentors, man, that kind of brought me out of it. I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but um, I knew I had something to say. I don't even know how we got connected. I think you reached out to me years ago. Someone um, connected us, and I can't remember. And I remember, uh, I, do, well, I remember speaking to you because I was, I remember I was at a friend's house, and I was like, I got to call this guy, this Green Beret. So I remember, because I was at a, I was at a, uh, backyard party, and I and my friends were like, "You gonna call who?" I yeah, there's a Green Beret. He wants to reach out, and I remember we connected, and um, and that's how we got connected. So we haven't really talked much besides a couple. Yeah, I guess not. It seemed like it was just yesterday, but I think that might have even been pre-COVID. It was. Oh yeah, it was definitely pre-COVID. It was like four oh. years ago, man. Yeah, three well, four years. Um, you know, it just it, it just it. It got to the point where I was, I don't even remember where I was, but I was not in a good writing. Well, I mean, I was asking you about, you know, what got you the writing the play? I mean, did you have, I mean, to write a play, I mean, did you have, uh, were you an artist as a kid? I know you wanted to be a green, but were you an artist as a kid? Did, did your dad or mom write or somebody in your family write or? And my mom was yelling, no. Uh, uh, yeah, my dad's my, you know, my dad's a musician and, and likes to play, but he doesn't write music. I think for me, it, it, I, I've always kind of been creative, but I, I, I think for me, I got, I knew I had something to say when I got out of the military, I felt like I should be on stages. I like, I, I liked the storytelling aspect. I didn't really have a language for it, but, uh, an NFL, a, pro, a former NFL football player, uh, named Bo Eason, uh, who had played for the Oilers back in the eighties. His brother was Tony Eason played for the yeah. Patriot. Yeah. Uh, Bo had blown his knee out for the seventh time and had entered into the world of acting and, and, you know, had some measured success with it, but not a lot, and decided to write his own thing, which I love. And, and I think he wrote a play about about concussion, didn't he? He wrote a play called Runt of the Litter about becoming an NFL football player and 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 his brother as a rival. Um, but I think I remember it. I think you would, and it's just so it's it's really cool because the guys I seem to be drawn to are the guys that write their own stuff, do their own. Thing. Yeah, and I know you're really, you're really getting big on that right now, and I love it. Um, and encouraging people to do that. So anyway, Bo, I, I saw him speak and I was just enamored with how he moved around the stage. He moved like an operator because he was his physicality, he was in his body. And again, I didn't have a language for any of this stuff. I just knew that like looking at him 
that's what I wanted to do. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And it actually just clicked with me. And so I talked to him afterwards and he ended up mentoring me for a couple of years and he, and he, and he, and he, and he taught me a lot of his craft in, in storytelling and stage, like speaking. And as a result of that, I started taking classes and several of my coaches were acting coaches and they kept saying, you should write a play, man. Like this stuff is really powerful and it'll heal you, you know? And so I wrote it really to heal myself, to kind of get them all back. It's therapy, man. It's therapy. I mean, the play for me was also therapy. I mean, that's acting to me was therapy because I grew up a very traumatic childhood. And so none of my friends, all my friends are on construction. They're all on construction. They're, I grew up in Texas and I mean, when I, I was, I'm known as the Joey of, of, of the group that I play football with. They're like, you know, I mean, I remember when I told them I was going to get into acting, their, their heads almost did a 360. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, you know, acting, it shines, a, it shines a mirror onto life. And I always say, it gives you two reflections, you know, it gives you the reflection that you don't want to be and the reflection that you want to be. And yeah. so, and that to you is, it's very therapeutic because you, as you're working on characters or when, even when you're writing your own character, you say like, I want to be like that guy. And so that forces you to kind of be introspective and look at yourself. And then when you write the, the dark stuff, you're like, well, I, I got to be careful when I am that guy. And then again, you introspectively look at yourself. So you have a more, you know, when you get into the world of acting, you have a better understanding of self because you're always, you become a, a human behavior analyst. Um, and you're always studying, right? So where a lot of people are kind of, for the most part, are, their emotions kind of whip them around and they don't have any self uh, introspective of themselves. So that's, that's the beauty about acting. Um, and it is a form of therapy. I agree. And I, you know, I, I just didn't have a language for any of it at the time. I knew the play was, as I started to write it, I felt, I'd already written a couple of books. It, it, it felt better to do it. And then I did a, in one of my little acting classes I was doing down at Sarasota, I did a scene, uh, from the play that at the time, this was like 2017 and, and it really was well received. And I think most of the training is at Green Beret. Cause you know, I looked up, I looked into Green, what a Green Beret, um, uh, is, you know, and you guys work a lot with the local, uh, indigenous people. And that's kind of like your, your, you guys, if I'm correct, Green Berets, they, they're more like they get wherever they're going, they get there and they work with the indigenous people in that area. So you have to be kind of like a chameleon in, in a way you have to, you have to adjust and you have to kind of mold and you have to adapt different things. And that's acting really, because you're kind of a chameleon when you're an actor either, you know, character to character, or when you're playing just, you know, a performance, you're, you're trying to manipulate yourself to adjust to something. And that's, I think, I think that probably helped you as a, as a green beret, because you, you know, you're always, I, we're, to be honest with you, we're all actors and we're always acting. Everyone's acting every single day. Um, some people do it at home. Some people do it with their spouses, but if you're an acting, you get to do it on stage. And so, um, there's always that version because you know when you lie, you're acting. You know when you when you when you fib the truth, you're acting. And so, as a Green Beret landing in some you know far away place and trying to manipulate yourself, you're kind of twisting yourself in a in a way that would give you you know the seed of training to approach characters, you know, to approach acting. Um, I looking back on it, it definitely did. I mean, like that that line of work, you characterized it pretty well. I tell people that like a modern day Green Beret is kind of a combination of John Wick, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. You know, I mean, why the Verizon guy? 
Well, because, you know, they're relationship-based connectors, but, you know, we, we go in with 12 guys, but you ride out with 12,000, you know? Right. I mean, like, that's the, that's the, they're a strategic multiplier. And so um, it's not uncommon. So you build these massive networks, you know, like a, that's the funny thing about a Green Beret is like you drop a Green Beret off in an embassy somewhere, you come back in a, in a month, like he's co-opted the whole embassy. Like he knows everybody. He knows the mail clerk, like, and, and he's built a whole network. And that's why Pineapple Express was so successful. Yeah. And these other were so successful. It was 20 years of relationship. So yeah, you're right. I mean, that there definitely was that. And I think there's also, for me at least, there was this, I, do, I understand how to train and I understand the relationship to practice. And I understand that if I'm going to be good at something, I have to surround myself by the best and I have to do what they tell me to do and, and, yeah. and with full commitment. And that's what I loved about acting is I, you know, I went to New York and I studied under Carl, Carl Bury and Larry Moss. Nice guy. But I, think, I think at first they wanted to see like, is this, this guy can't be serious. Um, and when I showed them that I was, then they, they kind of said what you said. There was, they were like, look, you've got all the goods. You just got to be fully committed to this and just, yeah. and just, and just dive in. And I did. And I, and I, as I did it, I actually started to feel way better. I mean, I, it was not just therapy for me. It was life-saving therapy for me. It was, it changed everything in my, in how I navigated the world and how I was available to the people I loved. And yeah. it just gave me all these tools that the craft of acting gave me all these tools for living. Yeah. Well, it's the mirror, man. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's the mirror, you know, um, George Bernard Shaw has a great quote and you may want to hold on to it. You know, it says we use a mirror to see our face, but we use art to see our souls. And, um, and that's the beauty of acting. I mean, acting changes everybody when they get into it, you know, and that's the addiction of it as well. Um, because it's so guttural. It's so, if you're doing it, if you're fully out, you know, and trust me, there's actors who are not, they don't go full out and they drop out careers and, you know, so, uh, if you're committed to the craft and to understanding, it's really, to me, acting is really a, a, a surgical uh, operation on on human behavior. That's the way I look at it. You know, because you're really analyzing things, and that's the beauty of it. That's what those are the tools that will probably save you, and that's probably why you know when I'm vet see the play, my play, it, they they get so um, uh, you know they get so moved and get so emotional and they get a mouthpiece. But let me ask you, like, what did your you have boys, right? Three boys, three boys, yeah. Uh, how old were they when you wrote? How old is the play? It's been six years in development, maybe seven. So when was the first time you put it on? On a November, November 10, 2018. 2018. And what did, how old were your boys when they first saw it? High school and junior high. And what was the reaction then and what's the reaction now? Well, the reaction then was, you know, really surprised. And I think, uh, proud, you know, and, and, um, just, I think happy to see me in a place where I was fulfilled and, and doing something I loved, but they felt really connected to it as well. They felt like it, part of their life was up there, but it's evolved, you know, now like my, my middle son, Cooper, who works for federal law enforcement, he's in the play. He actually plays my son. Um, and he's never acted either. He's only started last summer and he's, he's at Carl directed as well. Carl trained him. 
uh, and directed him. Yes. And, uh, then my oldest son is in the army, uh, doing what I did following that path, following his own path, but you know, he, he, yeah. he loved that kind of work. Um, and he's had a lot of input on the play. He's given me a lot of, a lot of, uh, insights into the play and things that he went through as a, as the oldest child of a, of a, of a military dad in a family that knew nothing but war. And then my youngest son, um, is playing, he's in college playing ball, uh, not too far from where you are. He's up in Hudson Valley. He's playing football, uh, baseball, baseball. And he, he's come to the play a lot and all of them have come to the play a lot. They, 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 you know, they, they work, come backstage with it. It's, it's very much a family affair. My wife has seen every show. Um, she doesn't miss a show and, and she's my, you know, my biggest inspiration. And, uh, yeah, so I love seeing, I love seeing the posts of you two. You guys seem very, um, it's very special, very close together, which is beautiful. I wouldn't have made it without her. There's, there's no way I wouldn't have be here. And how, how has her reaction to the play changed? I mean, because it's, you know, a play changes from the beginning to an end to where it's at now. I mean, there's just. Uh, yeah, her, her, it started with, why are you doing this? You know, why are you bringing all this stuff up again? Like we finally put this behind us. You're retired. Why are we going back here? You know, it started there. And then it was like, well, okay, if this makes you feel better. Then we'll do with kind of like entertaining it. Uh, we spent a ton of money. We spent, I'm not even going to tell you how much money we spent on this play. Well, I, uh, I know. I, I have a good idea because I've done it myself. <laughs> uh, and it really affected us financially. Uh, really affected us financially. And 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 that was that was tough. Uh, but yeah, then... That's a challenge with a multi-character play. I mean, that's why... How many characters are in your play? Well, we have six in the cast. You know, and then you, you know, it's got 300 sounded like cues. I mean, it's intense, man. And, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons I'm looking really hard at a one or two person show for my next one. Well, it has its challenges too. We can go into that, but it, you know, it's, if I could offer some suggestions on the light cues, for example, um, you can cut out a lot of your light cues as much as you don't think you can, you can, yeah. you can slim those down sound you need. Right, body will forgive you without light. They need sound. Sound can, you can use sound as light. Yeah, and that can help you streamline the play a little bit. You know, because uh, I know you know my play was when I first did my play, when it first got its legs, its sea legs, it was in an off Broadway house, and um, so it was designed with all the bells and whistles. When I was first touring it, I would try to do all the bells and whistles. And I just quickly realized like this is. This is not. This is not possible. I mean, this is just it's too heavy. You know, it's just so much work, and it's not. I, I can't sell this really down the country. You know, because people just don't have the ability. And so I started to learn how to kind of just. Okay, I don't need that light. 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 Sound I need, but sound is easy because you just run it off. I'm sure you. What do you guys use? QLab or something, right? Yeah, you just use QLab. You can do sound. So you can build. So take it for what it's worth. That's. Uh, oh, that's great. And that's what we're looking at, actually. We're looking at retooling the show. And you can slim your characters down, too, right? You can, yeah. just as you don't think, you can go from six to three, right? And you can have, you can kind of give each actor a kind of a one-person performance yeah. uh, where they perform six, or I don't know how many characters, I mean, how you would break it up, but you know, one actor performs four characters and the other actor performs five characters. And then, so then... Instead of going be six, you can be three or four people just traveling. So you can, you know, you can find ways to, I mean, that's the challenge 
um, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why multi-character plays are so hard to get produced because it's just, they're expensive. They're so expensive. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, we did the first year in 2019. Well, back to money's react. So now she's really one night she actually had to do the play because the, we didn't have understudy. We couldn't afford understudies in 2019. <laughs> so, did, she have to, did she have to memorize the lines and all that stuff? No, you know what we did? Um, Lynn is the character who's my character, my stage, my stage wife, right? And so the person that played Lynn lived in Orlando. She got in a minor car accident and she was okay. It was 30 minutes before we're supposed to, you know, this is 30 minutes before the show starts. Okay, and so we, on, her husband calls and she says, you know, she's not coming. And so we're sitting there and this is in Tampa at the Stras, you know, we're like, oh, dear God, you know, and uh, all of a sudden the guy at the time he's in the cast, Brian, he looks at Monty and Monty's like, what? No, no. And she starts, you know, and he's like, you've seen every show, you know, he, he's like, we could, you could do it off on book and it would still work. So we decide, look, all right. And, and, and Brian goes, um, get her a bottle of wine, Scott, walk away. All you're going to do is try to take care of her. I've got to get her ready. And, and so like, and we did. And, and so when it was time for the show to start, everybody comes out there, they're sitting in the audience. Um, the stage manager walks out and says, listen, uh, Anne Livingston's been in a car wreck and you get everybody go, huh? And she's like, no, nope, she's fine. Uh, Monty Mann, who's Scott's actual wife and who lived this experience has bravely volunteered to be on book so that we can present you with this story. And the place went nuts. Uh, and Monty came out there and was on book and was just, it was so fun. And two funny things that happened out of that is one is there's a scene in there where uh, my stage wife gets news, watching the news, and she screams. There's no dialogue except that. That came from my wife. So, like, she's on book all the way up until the scream scene, and, like, she lays the book down. And I'm like, oh, God. And she, like, so she actually did the scream, and it wrecked me. And then the other thing that happened that was super funny was, I guess, an old couple had come in late. Uh, to the play and they didn't know any of this was going on and and so they were walking out and one of our front of house people heard them say this lady said i don't care what anybody says those two have something going on do you see the way they were kissing <laughs> uh what was there i mean i mean that must have been a very surreal moment for her to do, actually to relive in her way her life now because now the mirror of art is being shined on her now you know? everything changed for her in her perspective and she said don't ever do that to me again like that's it i'm not i'm not ever doing that again but it did change for her her connection to the show just deepened so much and we talked about that and you know i was like what was that like to you know to to have those autobiographical experiences and she said it was really it was really healing you know and um, i think just she's always 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 worked behind the scenes and so for her to do that was one of the bravest things i've ever seen and it showed me her commitment not just to me but to this project and, and to our veterans, you know, cause she didn't want those veterans and military families to not have that story. And, um, it was, it was really cool. And, and her perspective from then on changed. Now she's probably more adamant about the show than I am. Like she, it's, it's her baby and just not just that show, but our storytelling approach for veterans and families that she's, you know, she's, she's a beast. You had rooftop before you did the play, right? Yeah. Rooftop's my for-profit where I, I teach interpersonal skills that I learned as a Green Beret, active listening, story, narrative competence, uh, you know, uh, nonverbal communication, like all how to build rapport in low trust environments. Um, I teach that as a, a body of work in the corporate world. And that gives me the airspeed to do all the stuff on our hero's journey side where we help warriors find their voice and tell their story. We do the play, 
to show what's possible. These are all veterans and military family members. And then we run storytelling workshops. Was that a specific choice to only cast veterans? Did you not think about casting actors? Why? Because there's pros and cons with that decision. There were. And I went through all, I went through a lot of them. You know, I talked to Gary Sinise about it, Carl, Larry Moss. I think you and I even talked about it. And, and, and I just made the conscious choice that, look, if we're going to if we're going to travel, and I also knew that you were doing your play. So I'm like, all right, you know, this is going on in a couple of places across the country. Um, if if we can keep this thing all, I, I wanted to demonstrate that veterans and military family members can be prolific storytellers. And so four of our six cast members are not professional actors. They they train very hard and they work very hard at it, but they have you know, J-O-Bs, they do, and they, they do not pursue pursuits of acting in any other thing but this. And it really, I think it has served in that regard. And you're right, there are cons, and we've experienced them. Um, but overall, for this particular show, it works. And I think we'll always probably keep it that way. But new stuff that I'm working on, you know, I'm open to, I'm open to a range of things. But, um, but for that one... I think people have almost become accustomed to it now. It's like kind of something they talk about, you know, like, you know, seeing, because people think it's either going to be some self-indulgent, this one time at band camp military memoir yeah. or, you know, an after school special, right? It's one of the two that people come in expecting. And I think they're pretty surprised when they see. Yeah. I mean, a good story is a good story. I mean, I mean, you know, the base, the, the, the founding, the foundation of a good story is, you know, hero, conflict and desire, you know, and if you have those three elements, it doesn't matter what it is it's it's a good story um a good story falls apart when it doesn't have those three in my opinion those three pillars conflict uh d hero and desire and so uh, you mentioned garrison he's tell me so that must have been so you know you i'm sure you did it in bullshit places when you first started it and then somehow you get connected with garrett sinise and now you're at the steppenwolf you're that's why i told you you know you really you, when you're performing it's it's the beauty and the beast, um, in the and my and my industry is that you know especially it's worse on film sets because you know on film sets you can kind of you can almost become a family with the people you're working with, especially if you all get along and then you rap and you're like that's it, boom, everybody's gone and sort of they're all in different worlds and you stay in contact with some you know Facebook and whatever but and so in theater it's the same thing you know you. You know, you work with the tech people, you work with people in the house, you know, and you become really close, you know, for those two, three days or a week, whatever it is you're there. And then boom, it's over with. And, yeah. and so uh, my experience, you know, that's why, I, you know, I wanted to kind of emphasize, really smell the roses, you know, enjoy the moment, you know, even the drudgery when you come into the, like the little things coming into a beautiful dressing room, you know, uh, having your shit always hung up, you know, you should prepare for you, you know, that stuff is because not all theater is always like that. Um, yeah. And yeah. when you get, when you're in that Mercedes Benz of a theater experience, you really need to smell the leather, if that makes sense. It was a great piece of advice you gave me. You know, uh, just one second, I'm going to ask my dad something here. Uh, yeah. Okay, brother. Sorry about that. Um, 
I'll give no. I was just going to say that. Um, so, so two levels to that. I mean, as far as the the smell the roses piece, you know, we did a 2019 tour where we put 28,000 miles on a U-Haul van. Uh, this that uh, our 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 support team, just like our cast. I mean, we had one professional actor in the cast at that time, or four person in the cast. Um, you know, our tour manager had was an Air Force spouse who had lost her husband to suicide. You know, we had a gold star mom. The two guys that drove the, the van and did all of our stage work were, you know, Purple Heart, best buddies from Iraq. I mean, we were the island of the misfit toys, bro. I mean, it was, but we did it, you know, and we performed in school cafeterias and just, you know, but, but you get it, you know, and, and, and I, 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 I loved it. I, it was phenomenal. That was where money and I dropped most of our cash to keep it going and keep our people paid. And, you know, we donate our time to it. That's how we kind of it's just what we do and, and we make our money on the our revenue on the for-profit side and it gives us airspeed um and for me it, it 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 is what i feel like i'm meant to do and then we would run a storytelling workshop on the heel on that saturday for the local veterans and stuff so call it our emotional breaching tool to open people up to storytelling and then we would help them tell their stories so that worked and then covid shut it down in our second season before we could even get it going and um we made a we raised the money and we made an amazon prime low budget film uh and 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 then then afghanistan collapsed we were getting ready to launch that thing nationally and uh, afghanistan collapsed and uh it just pulled me back to that dark place and i stood up the uh i stood up the group uh task force pineapple and that was when gary i was talking about it on fox news talking about the play he watched the play john Androsic from five for fighting had joined efforts with us on the afghan thing and, and recommended to gary to watch it and that's when gary watched it and he reached out and and uh offered to you know put it up and and it was it was you're right i mean he, the the resourcing he brought to that changed everything we had a production team out of new york i mean it changed Ed carl bury we were able to bring him in and it did it changed the whole show quality of the show and the experience um and now we're back to you know okay that's over that was great um but there's a lot of veterans out there hurting in these hard to find places aircraft carriers how do we get this thing lean and mean again so we're actually going back to kind of where we came from but thanks to your advice i think everybody on that tour really i mean i tell them every time in our circle smell the roses remember guys because i told them that that first night in phoenix when you had symptoms and that kind of became our battle cry and it really was very very special when we ran you know you know you really don't appreciate it as an actor and you know yet i've you know i've had the experience and you know it's easy to oh man you know this chair sucks or it's cold in here or or you know where's my freaking costumes or i'm tired today you know because you do get tired you know you know on their days you're going to get tired and you're like, oh, it'd be nice if, you know, go to a restaurant and have a dinner, you know, and, you know, you, you, you get to these points as a performer, you, you get these, you know, this resistance sometimes. And, but then you forget, hey, man, you know, um, this is, you know, we, this is a, a once in a lifetime experience that we get to, to tour, get to, do it. to tour like a Broadway show, you know. I mean, I remember when I performed at the Kennedy Center, that's kind of where I really, I was like, holy crap, gotta be kidding me. This is all for me. But you know, you know, you walk in, hey doing Mr. Trill, you know, they grabbed my bags off of me, you know, and they took me to the uh to the dressing room, you know. I mean it was you know, it's first class, you know, you don't you and you've you know, that same thing with me. I've performed in, you know, chocolate factories and, and warehouses and 
hotel conference room. I mean, I, I've been everywhere. I've been, you know, beautiful spaces, you know, library, conference, you know, off Broadway and stuff. But um, when you're in those great moments, you just have to smell the roses. You have to kind of remind yourself, yeah. oh, look at the dressing room, you know, actually, actually stare at the walls that you're in and say, yeah. Oh, that's interesting, you know, and because they become memories, you know, and it's easy to get stuck on your phone and texting people and you're just like kind of almost flying through it without living it, you know, you know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and I, I, I mean, that, that's so close to home for me because the, you know, look, it is a memory now. Yeah. And. I think back on all of the opportunities we had to interact with these amazing people, these gold star families and, and to tell the story for them. But in some of the houses that we were in, they were so special. And, um, it was, it was honestly, it was a dream of a lifetime to be honest, like for our, for not just for me, but for our, our, our team, you know, to be able to, to go into some of these beautiful theaters and, and be welcomed there and, and to be able to perform this story and, 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 and have that memory, you know, it, it, uh, it is a once in a lifetime thing. And so, uh, that was great. It was much appreciated advice. And, and I, and I, 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 I'm glad that I did that because I think it really made us more mindful and intentional. Uh, cause we only did one show a month, you know, and, and, yeah. and it went really fast. It flies um, by, man. It flies by just like life. It flies by. I mean, you're a fucking Steppenwolf, man. I mean, as an actor, I know Steppenwolf from years, you know, I mean, Gary Sinise was a big inspiration for me. You know, I did, you know, he and Malkovich did True West at Cherry Lane in, in, uh, in the village in Manhattan. And that was, you know, I was a Malkovich fan and I loved True West. And I remember seeing uh, video clips of it and I studied with Wynn Hanman. And so I knew True West really well, deeply, uh, it became, it was one of my favorite, it is one of my favorite plays. And Sam Shepard, who wrote the play, he studied with Wynn Hanman. And Wynn, who was my mentor and my acting teacher, he told old stories about Sam all the time, you know, and uh, he would come to class sometimes. So, yeah. so I, I was like, well, I, I want to do True West. And so I did True West. And then um, Gary did Of Mice and Men. And like, well, I want to do Of Mice and Men. So then I, I produced Of Mice and Men and I played uh, George, you know, so, um, it, it, when you, when you work with the, with like, when you work, when you're, when you're on a production like that, you know, it's in, in your, you, you're, it's such a, it's, it's such a special experience that you don't really understand it, you know? And when you're at the Steppenwolf, you know, the history goes back all the way from the Cherry Lane. I mean, the Cherry Lane was this. That's where everybody wanted to act at from the, when acting in the seventies and sixties and I said, man, I think the chair lane was founded in the fifties. It's actually, I don't think it's, it's barely hanging on now, but, uh, everybody who you, with you, you've seen on TV from our generation was trying to get on the cherry lane and then they started the Steppenwolf. And so everybody, you, there was a big connection between actors in New York and Steppenwolf because that was him and John Malkovich and John Malkovich was a, you know, he's, he was legendary in acting because he was, he was the type of actor. I mean, there's crazy stories about John Malkovich in, in the acting stories, but I mean, you know, he would go up to you on stage at the Steppenwolf and he'd grab your nuts and he says, I don't think you're focusing. And then he just keep going. And he was like that. 
and he yeah. and actors were just like terrified of John Malkovich. Um, and um, so Steppenwolf has a tremendous artistic history for actors. Like it is, it, yeah. it's very well, it's, it's a fucking holy grail, man. It's, you know, so for you guys to be on that stage, you know, and breathe the air that, you know, Gary and John Malkovich started when they were, and started when they were babies, basically, is quite special. And that's why I was like, man, smell these roses, dude, because you're on a special, special, special journey. It was. And, and, you know, I think it was the other thing that was really cool was you had this blending of the military community and the theatrical community. And it really there was a, a deep, deep respect of both. You know, a lot of that I attribute to kind of my friendship with Carl. You know, Carl seemed to really get our world, and I and I like to think that I got his world, and that they merged. And and so when things like Steppenwolf happened, it you know, you could see like in Heather's eyes and Brian's eyes and Carl's eyes where we were. Like you knew where you, you know the first special ops imperative is know your operational environment, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you knew, like everyone really knew and respect. Sure. I mean, I know Carl probably knew, uh, cause I mean, Carl is probably, he understands that history as, as well as I do. And he was probably like, guys, we're walking yeah. holy grail here. He, and he made that very clear, you know, from, from jump street. Um, and, and particularly considering it was where we were kicking off the season, yeah. the tour and, and, uh, there were a lot of. Uh, a lot of cool things that happened on that particular show. But I mean, all, you know, all things considered, when I look at the year, uh, you know, for me, I, at a, my mission set at, at the end, of, you know, after the Afghanistan collapse and withdrawal, the only reason I put the play back up, I wasn't going to put the play back up. I mean, I was, I'd moved on, uh, was because our military community is hurting so badly. And like I testified to the House Foreign Affairs Committee, we're on the front end of a mental health tsunami with veteran mental health like if you think it now it's going to get worse and and a lot of the you know there's no silver bullet out there but if we allow america to turn the page on service like you know serve pro like it never even happened uh while at the same time our families have fallen and our war fighters are going did it even matter like just did it even matter that is a that is the devil's cocktail, man. And, and, and so anything that we can do, I believe to get out there and a help our civilians understand the cost of modern war and B remind our military community members that it did matter. And it still does matter is life-saving and you're doing it, man. I have to say, like, I am in awe of your commitment to this mission and you may have your own way of framing it, but you, you are definitely doing those two things and, and we need all the help we can. It's all hands on deck right now. Yeah. I mean, for me, the reaction, um, you know, I mean, people always ask me in the Q and A's, you know, you know, life is weird. Uh, you know, when I graduated high school out of the, uh, out of playing from Texas football, every recruiter, I'm blind in my left eye and every recruiter was calling me, you know, you graduate, you play Texas high school football and, you're on the A list for recruiters to call you, you know, and they know when you graduate, they're calling you, you know, and the army called me and, you know, and told I was blind and they said, well, you know, I think you'll have a great life, son, but I don't think military is for you and Marines call. I told them the same thing. I think even the Coast Guard call and I said, hey, man, before you even start speaking, dude, let me just tell you right now that I'm blind in my left eye. So I thought that was it for the military. Like I would have no connection with the military. Like that would be some other world that other people do. So fast forward, you know, 
I mean, life, you know, God has, he, he has, I guess he has a plan, but he has, always has the last laugh. So when I went, you know, I left here with my wife, my girlfriend then, my wife now, 30 years, We, I was like, well, I got to get out of Texas. If I'm going to act, I got to go either LA or New York. And she wanted to go to grad school. So we went to New York. And so 2000, we landed there and 9-11 happened. And I was coming out of the North Tower. And so I just got completely turned on to what was happening in the Middle East, you know, and I've always been a kind of guy, I boxed in college, so I was always the kind of guy who would like, you know, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Um, and if you gave me a shoulder in the hallways, I'm going to give you another one back. And so when 9-11 happened, I wanted to get them, man. I was like, I want to get those motherfuckers, you know, get them. So I became just obsessed with reading about the war and about what was happening in, in, in Iraq and, and, and then, then in Afghanistan. And so then I started reading stories about guys who were struggling with PTS. And that's really where the, you know, I was like, man. And then I was, you know, New York is so freaking jaded that, you know, they, people were, it was by this time is around 2006, 2007. I knew we were deep into the wars, but New York hadn't moved on. It was trying to move on, you, you know, and it was, and I felt. So fast forward, when I first performed the play, I just wanted I had this itch. I just wanted people to understand what was going on in the Middle East. I just needed to people to understand. And my dad was really patriotic. He was in, a, you know, he's passed, but he was a, he was a, a Argentinian Jew, and he was always very, very proud American, and he was always grateful for what America did during the Second World War. He's always watched the show called The uh, World at War. I don't know if you ever remember it. Um, um, and it used to drive me nuts when I would come home from school. He'd still be watching. It was basically the Hitler Channel. Uh, and, um, but when I first performed it in the lower East side, I did it for a workshop and it was, and that would be the other advice I would share with you, but it sucked when I first did it, it, it really sucked. And I know it sucked. I felt it sucked. You know, I know when a place sucks and I was in it and I was like, oh my God, it was the worst, you know? Um, but you have to get, you have to kind of like when the military say, you know, enjoy the suck. It's the same thing in art. You know, when you first start, you got to really enjoy the suck because it's not, it's only temporary. If you keep working on it and getting feedback, it gets better. But when I, then we fast forward, we found in 2014, we found a little, uh, finally uh, a, a uh, theater festival had accepted me and then they turned me and then they went bankrupt. The New York Fringe Festival, which is this huge festival in New York, was really popular and it was kind of a, a festival to be and then 2014, they accepted me, and then they went bankrupt. And I was like, fuck. So then I found this one bullshit little Lower East Side. I had applied to them earlier, and they said no to me. And they said they finally came back to me. It was in the Memorial Weekend of uh, 2015. It was a rainy Sunday night. And they said, look, man, we need a, we need, someone dropped out. You know, I remember you, you applied. Can you, you know, if you're off book, can you jump in? Can you do 20 minutes? And I said, yeah, I'm ready to go, man. And so I jumped in. And I thought that was going to be the last time. I really thought that that was going to be it. It's like, finally, I got my festival. I'm going to get it up, you know. And I had been working on this play for for a long time. I mean, I would, I've, I've always been a history buff. So I would go to the New York Public Library, Scott, and I would just read veteran letters. I mean, like so masochistic, you know, thing I had of myself. And I would just sit there and read them over and over, you know. And I'd... I would check out books. I'd Xerox them. You know, I'd read letters from Vietnam, from World War II, from the Civil War Revolution, 1812, you know, and I was 
fascinated by. You know, I was like getting down, was going down a rabbit hole. You know, I would come back and I would, my, I would go to an audition in the city. I'd finish it. And if I had a break, my wife was either at, she was working at Pfizer every time I started creating it. And I would, um, I had, instead of going back to Hoboken, I would just go to the New York Public Library and check out books and read them and get stories. And so I didn't know what to do with it. No one knew what to do with it. So anyway, what, I t what I'm trying to say is that when I finally performed it, I was like, fuck, I'm done. Thank God I'm done with this thing, man. Because, you know, my wife was like, what are you going to do? And people were like, what are you doing? And directors said, no, I would ask, I would ask directors. And they were like, I, what do you want to do with all these letters, man? This is kind of, I mean, you know, this is kind of, I don't think anybody wants to see this stuff. People said all kinds of stuff, uh, which is another advice. Just get focused on what you want to do because everyone's going to give you their opinion and especially in the art and uh, nine times out of 10, it's worthless. Um, and so I, when I first performed it, Lori's and the Lori's in Manhattan, eight people showed up. There was two shows and three were only for me. It was my director, a photographer that I hired and a friend of mine who came to see the play. And the other five were for her. She was doing a play about being overweight and it was called Big Skinny, being overweight and not having her affection for her dad. And I remember telling the, the producers, please let me go first. Like, I don't want to go after that. I don't, I don't think they're going to get my, what I'm doing after that play. So she said, yeah, you can go first. And a gold star sister came up to me after the play. And that was the first time, I mean, I got a standing ovation and I share that a lot, but it wasn't a standing ovation. It was that I felt the voice of the play. I felt kind of like it, it woke up. The play had finally woken up. And this sister came up. This She lost her brother in Afghanistan. And she was really emotional. And she said, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I hope you don't ever stop. And I said, well, I'll try not to. You know, I, I think this might be the last time. She goes, well, you should think about not. You should think about keep going. And um, And so... That was the that was the first time that and my director was there and I had you know to be honest with you my director who was a really accomplished solo show artist a show solo show director you know he was kind of like gun a gun for hire for me because I got so frustrated that I couldn't find a director that I finally just fucking founded someone and said look I'm going to pay you two hundred bucks to watch me perform a monologue you know I just want you to perform a I just want to perform a monologue for you tell me what you think and and just help me craft it. And he said, sure, you know, and then he said, that's kind of interesting. You know, you want to do some more? And I said, yeah, I've got some more. And so anyway, I said, how much would it cost? How much can I hire you for to help me do like 20 minutes? Because I just got to get this thing up. This is an itch that I've got to get up. And, and he says, well, you know, he gave me a price. And so, but after that performance, that sister came up, he was like, holy shit, I think, I think maybe we have something here that we didn't think we had. And so we flushed it out. You know, and I, we took it into, when we made it 40 minutes and then I, the next performance, my wife is Scottish and I perform at the Edinburgh Festival Fridge, which would be a good festival for you to think about. And we can talk about that. Um, but I took it there to Edinburgh and, um, yeah, that's where the play blew up, man. And that's where I got nominated for an Amnesty International Award. And then I would, and you know, what people don't understand is in, in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, have you ever heard of it? I lost your voice. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. No, we're good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I've heard of it. Yeah, and so there's like when I I did it once in 2005. I took True West in 2005, and it did really well. And then in 2015, 
my wife goes, well, let's just go to Scotland and do it. And, you know, we had a place to stay because her parents were, were there in Edinburgh. And so I said, I mean, we got married and uh, on a stage in Edinburgh. And uh, I said, fuck, I mean, you can't take a American play about American soldiers to Scotland called the American soldier. They're going to fucking they're gonna throw rocks at me, man. I mean, like, they're going to be like, who is this dude? So he's going to have balls of an elephant. And so, but what I didn't realize when I first performed it there was, I mean, there's like 3,500 shows there, man. I mean, it's like everyone and their dog. I think there's even more now. In fact, there's so many shows there that a lot of the the in, the locals there they hate the festival because it just it overruns the whole city for three four weeks. But uh, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew, but I didn't. I just it didn't dawn on me how many Irish, Scots, and Brits were suffering with PTS because they they were they were also fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're the ones that and then there are ones that they they I have a Q&A after the play but they kind of crafted the Q&A for me because after the play they would come up to me and they wanted to talk to me like they they wanted to share their story they wanted to know who I was it was was I a veteran blah 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 and that's so I I started after Scotland I said man look let's just do a Q&A after the play because people are going to they're not going to leave the theater until we do a Q&A uh so yeah and so you know 44 cities you know almost nine years later, uh, here it goes, you know, and, um, and, and that was a, I mean, that was something I have a question for you and, and, and I'd like to get your advice on it. Cause sometimes for me, I'll get, a, I'll, you know, I'm not a veteran. So, well, when I get a veteran, it really breaks down, really breaks down on me. Um, I happened just now in Frederick, Texas, I had finished the play. We were doing three shows there and, um, uh, I was just kind of, you know, uh, getting, I always like, I have a trunk the, and, and a table and it gets moved, moved around. So I'm really kind of OCD when I start the next day. So I like to get everything ready back the way it is. So I come into the theater the next day, it's ready to go for me. So a couple of people were there, just two, three, the whole theater had basically, after the Q and A had kind of flushed out. And I saw this veteran sitting up in the, up in the, up in the house. And he was, and I, I noticed him, but I, I figured he's going to either going to come down and say hi to me or something, or he's going to eventually leave or something. Or he's on his phone and he stayed there. And I finally just, I was talking to my niece who was there at the play and the, uh, the producer of the house. And I said, you know, excuse me, sir, can I, is there something I can do for you? Uh, you all right? And he just came tired of walking down and he just fell into my arms and just started crying. And he, and everybody kind of scattered and I sat down with him and, you know, he told me he lost two friends this year and, uh, he, you know, he's losing faith and, you know, I've talked to a lot of vets and, uh, I'm friends with Brian Aish. I don't know if you know, but he's got a documentary out, uh, it, it's, it came out years ago. It's on Netflix called father, soldier, son. And, um, you know, he said, you know, you got to tell these guys, you know, I told them what I know for what I've been told to tell, you know, I said, you know, you got to keep going. You know, you can't give up. You owe it to the guys who didn't come back to keep going. You know, find a way to talk. Find someone to talk to. You got to promise me. So, you know, what? I mean, are those the good words? Are those the right words? I mean, I think that's 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 a lot of the best we can do. You know, and and just you know, a lot of times it's just they want to be seen and heard. You know, they yeah. they're so isolated. Um, it is. You know, what we try to do, and we're a little. You know, our team's a little bigger. I don't know if this works. One is every show I do, I have a trauma interventionist in there. You pay for them to come there? 
I do, but we, but we're a nonprofit. So we raise the, you know, that's part of it. That's just part of what we do is, is that we have a trauma interventionist postured to intervene. And, you know, we've done that for years. Like it's just, what you know, even when I run my storytelling workshops with no play, I have a trauma interventionist on hand because you just don't know what you're going to get, you know? And if somebody gets into a, a deep sympathetic state, we're not equipped for that. You know, we're just not equipped to handle that. And, 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 uh, and so I want to, I mean, that's a heavy load for you as a production, man. Yeah, it is. But, but I mean, we've encountered shit, bro. Oh, I know it. I've seen it too, man. I, yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, you know, most, but I think what you did is on, on point, you know, I think for the most part, I, other than having a trauma interventionist or, you know, a lot of times, man, honestly, if you, if you contact, like if you reach out the town you're going to, um, maybe start with the VA or local veterans, uh, suicide awareness group It's just say, look, I'm doing a play in this town. Um, could you help me find a trauma interventionist to be on hand? Good advice. You know, and I bet they would, and it, and they probably would volunteer their time. You know, um, we pay for them because they trap, we, we ask a lot of them. Um, we, they participate in the talk back, like they travel with us there. They help us because everybody in our cast just about has PTS, traumatic brain injury and survivor skill. Like we're, we're dealing with our own crap and, you know, we don't necessarily have decades of craft like you do to work, do a lot of that stuff pre-show. So we have, you know, sometimes we get jammed. Um, sometimes I get jammed and I have to have an, my interventionist get in there and, you know, help me resolve that trauma real time. Uh, but I think to back to your question, what you said and how you handled that, I think that's the best we can do, honestly, unless you follow up somehow. And that's really tough. That's hard to do. Well, I, I'm really a letter. I, I, I always ask, um, uh, cause I, I've had, I've had many experiences similar to that. Uh, yeah. but that was the first time a guy really broke down like that. I mean, he melted on me basically. Uh, oh. and, uh, so I asked for his home address. So I wrote him a letter. I mean, I had a guy, I, I, I and I performed in an armory once, man, in the middle of freaking Hudson River. And some of the West Point community was there. And I had this big old guy. He was, he had his arms like this. I was outside and his arms were crossed. And, and he was just looking at me. And I was like, oh, shit, man, I'm going to get off this. I'm going to finish this play. And this dude's going to come up to me and he's going to give me the riot act, man. But the same thing. He just said, he started, say, can I talk to you privately? And I said, yeah. And so he just broke down, same thing. And, um, John Cannoli, um, uh, and, I mean, it's been amazing. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've been getting connected with a lot of the vets, but that's been the amazing thing with me with the vets is that you become friends. I feel you know, like look at me and you, man. I, the, the, I mean, I mean, I went to New York to study, you know, to get on Broadway. I didn't think I was going to be talking to Green Berets and Seals and and people. You know, I thought I was going to be. Huh. It's weird, you know. And so, um, and every time I perform, I, I get these amazing messages from people that I've connected with around the country, you know. Um, and I agree with you. I know there's a lot of pain and I know Afghanistan has caused a tremendous amount of hurt. And I know, I mean, like I said in the beginning, if I felt the pain, I can only imagine what guys who've lost their brothers, who've lost their arms, who, uh, who fought over there. I can only, I, I can only imagine the pain and suffering that they're going through right now. Well, they are, but you know what, man? Look, here's the thing is uh, what I like about what you're doing, what really stands out to me about what you're doing and gives me a lot of uh, inspiration 
Uh, and I don't think it's just, so you are doing this play about war and you're telling the story, but you know, civil society, civil society has used storytelling to bring warriors home for tens of thousands of years. Like, you know, kind of where you geek out on the letters from soldiers. I geek out on, on the social science aspects of human connection. Cause it's a green beret. Like I still teach that to green berets and FBI and recover guys. It's like, how do you build, you know, the civil societies use storytelling for thousands of years. I study it a lot and there's a, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of data and a lot of science that backs up the power of storytelling. Well, I mean, I, have you read, I mean, I mean, so I don't know if you've read, uh, Sophocles Achilles, you know, I mean, Achilles is all about PTS, you know, it's all about him going on a mad rat, uh, uh, rage, just killing people. And, you know, Sophocles was talking about PTS, you know, the Greeks, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, 80% of the Greek population served in the military and the Greeks were at war for 80 years. This is yeah. BC. We're going back. We're going way back. So PTS has been studied and they use storytelling. And then, you know, Shakespeare talks about in storytelling. Shakespeare talks about it in Henry the Fourth, Part Four, with uh, with Kate. You know, when Osper goes to comes back from battling Prince Hal. You know, and she's like, you know, you don't sleep, you don't talk, you don't look at me anymore. It's directly talking about PTS, and it's been and the Native Americans use storytelling and talked about PTS. You know, I mean, we just have I don't know why, and I would have thought that people in your community, the military community, after at least after Vietnam, would have had a better uh, a better plan to get guys to come back home. But, you know, in the the Cherokees and the Comanches, when they would go to war, when they would come back, the men and the horses would separate. And they would go just themselves and they they dance and they would they would and they would they would pray and they would light fires and they would kind of basically, you know, decompress before they joined the the the, the village again, you know. And it was a way of them healing. And then the villagers would recognize it and they would have dances around them. You know, the, I mean, the Indians were really good about bringing their warriors home, you know, and they understood their sacrifice. And, and there's a couple of people, you know, I've done some fundraisers who are using equine therapy and canine therapy to help vets. But it's the power of animals. It's incredible. But uh, I, I don't know why we don't do that in, right. in the military. Well, storytelling is a is a natural component to all of that, regardless of whatever protocol you're using, you know, bringing storytelling alongside it. And, you know, what I like, and, and it doesn't have to be for the military stuff either. It could be, you know, our healthcare society is, is dealing with a lot of moral injury coming out of COVID and, you know, having to violate kind of some of their codes when, when people expired, when they, they wanted to have their hands on them. Like there's Man, there's a lot of stuff going on in our civil society right now. And what I like about what you're doing is, you know, you're not only talking about storytelling, but you're talking about writing and putting your own stuff out there. And, I, I, I you know, the, the title of my next book that I'm working on right now is Nobody's Coming to Save You, A Green Beret's Guide to Getting Big Shit Done. And and honestly, man, like, I, I've just subscribed to this notion that nobody's coming. And I don't mean that like in a nihilist kind of way, like, you know, we're all doom and gloom. I just mean that, the bulk of the stuff in our life that really matters is the stuff that we that we do ourselves. And if we see there's a problem, if we see there's something broken, step into the arena and 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 elite, you know, and and in this case, art can do so much to redistribute the emotional load 
that a few veterans and their families are carrying onto the broader shoulders of the community. And I just think that's a really good place to be over the next few years. At least for me, it's where I'm going to put my time. Uh, it helps. No, I think it's incredible. I mean, you know, I should have started. I mean, I think you're a veteran that, um, you know, Brian Eich always says, you know, you got to find the key to coming back home uh, is finding something you love, finding your passion. And those two things, and, and you know, for him, he, he's a big fisherman. And he was like, man, I told my wife, I'm going fishing, whether you like it or not, like I'm going fishing. And, um, and so for you writing is it's, I think you're a veteran that can, is, can give a lot of inspiration and a lot of guide to a lot of guys, um, out there who, who don't know what to do with themselves. You know, they're really lost and writing is such a powerful thing. So that's, I think you're, you're a, you're a great beacon of hope for guys because a lot of guys like, oh, I'm not a writer. I'm not an actor. You know, I can't do that, you know, and, and they can, they just, they just have to put pen to paper, you know, or, or finger to keyboard, you know, what's your process when you write your book? I'm curious. So, you know, usually I, I believe that movement and meaning are inextricably linked. Ivan Terrell says that in the book, the human givens and, you know, we're meaning seeking creatures, meaning assigning creatures. And we usually find meaning in, in movement. So for me, uh, when I am full on working out, that's usually when visions come to me uh, for a concept or a story or an approach or a speech or a play or a scene. It's when I'm moving. And it's usually when I'm moving and I'm pushing up against the edge of my own physical ability. Um, but, I mean, I mean, yeah, more, but more tactically, do you like wake up in the morning and write or do you? Oh, yeah. You're talking about like process. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, for me, it's. It's, it's very, I'm very Stephen Pressfield-esque, you know, sit down and do your work. I have a four hour block. I sit down, I work in a 25 minute, uh, time set. And then I have, I have a break for five and then I write again. And after four hours, I'm done. That's it. I'm, I'm done for the day, pack it up and do it again tomorrow until my, do you do it every day? Yeah. If I'm writing a book or a play, uh, or something like that speech yeah do you outline your books first yeah i do i do i do some degree of outline on a whiteboard you know i'll try to get that and then it usually goes in the shit can after you know a couple of days of iterating and i do it again um but yeah i i do i do some uh, some kind of macro outline on a whiteboard that always tends to kind of help yeah that's uh well i mean you know the advice that i can give you if you do you want to do a one-man show of Pineapple Express. Um, I know, I mean, man, I was, I was thinking of you doing Pineapple Express. I really was. I reached out to you a couple times. I tried to, I, I gave what I could. Um, I wish I could have done more, man. Um, oh, I appreciate it. I think, look, here's what I would like to do. I don't know if you've had a chance to read the book or listen to it. Uh, Pineapple Express? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd love to pull up with you just separately. And I think there's. Let me figure it out. I mean, the when I it's cutting your voice out completely. Okay, let me go this way. Um, I, I think there's a real opportunity with that story um, to do something theatrically, and I, I'm not totally sure what it is yet, but I'm going to start leaning into it hard in 2024, and I'd like to talk to you more about it. Yeah, that, not, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, what I would say is the three biggest advice. I can give you as, as a, for a one man show is 
but make sure you have the three fundamentals, which I just told you, you got to have a hero. You've got to have con you've got to have a desire. What does he want? He's got to want something and he, and then, and conflict, right? doesn't have to get it, but there has to be conflict. He can lose, like he can lose your, your hero can win or lose, but we got to see him trying. That's the main thing. We got to see him try. I always give the Rocky analogy, you know, Rocky people, Rocky loses the fight, but his goal, yeah, he went the distance. Exactly. Distance. And so we got to see that struggle. And then the other thing is, you know, is it, you know, is it Scott man, you know, is it man versus man, man versus nature or, or man versus life, you know, uh, or, or, or himself, you know, those are the kind of the three elements in a one man show that you, you want to play with, you know, is it, Scott and going through Pineapple Express, you know, like, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get back in there, but you got to do it. You know, you got to do, you're, you're fighting, you're battling two Scots, you know, almost, you know, like do it, don't do it, shut up, don't do it, you know, or, you know, fighting an extra thing. Those are the things to think about when you create the one man show. And then a lot of people who get terrified with one man shows is just, uh, just enjoy the suck. Yeah. Um, because it gets better after the suck, you know. You, the thing is, you need the suck first, right? And and once you have the suck and you perform it for shoot five people in your living room, you take notes. You say what you like, what you didn't like, and you reapply it and you work it. And then you know, I mean, people look at the American Soldier and they think, oh my gosh, you know, that's you know, they haven't seen the the iteration of it from you know when it sucked, you know, um, when I actually was wearing the Civil War jacket you know <laughs> try to do a civil war piece and people are like what the fuck is that dude doing man i don't looking forward to seeing it i'm, I'm gonna be there and i and uh, you know one i was in Knoxville. uh no i'm coming to, are you in pennsylvania i'm coming to the one in pennsylvania no you mean michigan i think clinton maybe it is michigan sorry yeah that, you know, that's a far trek for you man because you're gonna have to drive to it yeah, but I can get to it quicker. Like it, it's a, it's a it's a it's a sooner performance than the Knoxville one, I think. Yeah, I mean, no. I, well, it's not too far. You basically just fly into Detroit, and then from Detroit you're gonna. Yeah. I, I've already, but and I think my son's coming with me too, Cooper, who's also in the play. Um, so we're looking forward to it. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what are your thoughts? Like because of pineapple, there are so many accents and so much, you know, there's such an Afghan dimension to it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that from a one person show perspective? Well, you have to create character. Doesn't have you don't have like they they for your the audience will forgive you on a bad accent without a doubt uh, if if you want to do an accent and if you don't do an accent you don't have to but you have to create character. Um, so if you're playing let's say Nassam, right, um, then you have to you know you're gonna have to put on a, a piece of clothing or something to kind of let the care let the audience know yeah. this is Nassam. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know. Then he used to work caricature and acting. You know, character is always really good for audiences, and they're really great for one-man shows because they define character. So if you give your character a physical gesture, movement or something, yeah. that the audience can they can define that character. And if you give it an accent, you know, um, uh, I do both in mind. But I mean, you have to kind of choose and separate. But the audience. We'll, we'll forgive you in a bad accent if you commit physically. That's the thing, you know. You know, the audience will always forgive you if you commit physically. I mean, you can't, on stage, you can't lie to an audience. Like, they get it right away, right? Like, if you're like, 
Yeah. If if you're thinking I don't I don't want to look stupid, you know, I think I may look stupid. Audience gets that and they they, they check out. They they're like he sucks. But if they see a Green Beret fully physically morphing himself physically, just not necessarily with an accent, but physically, then um, they'll they get it, man. They'll go with you. I mean, the audience is really forgiving when they see the actor go all the way. And then the the other piece of things you could do, you know, I mean, now we're going deep into the art of acting, but you know, as ifs are really powerful. I don't know if you've heard of the word as ifs. Uh, so you, you know, this is as if, you know, and, and as ifs are very personal, you know, yeah. there can be anything. The Psalm, it's, I don't, I don't know what you, what your plan on, on the one man show is, but let's say you're doing, I'm just going to be using the Psalm as a, uh, as an example. The Psalm reminds me of, a, you know, a, a, a cricket who's dancing, you know, and then you act like a cricket who's dancing and then you, you do the song like a cricket who's dancing. Right. Yeah. And that's your character. And then you, and, and that's how you start breaking these, these different people apart, you know? And I would also start small though, Scott, uh, I would do like 10 minutes, you know, or 20 minutes, right? So I'm just 20 minutes up or 15 minutes up and kind of get an arc. See what, what do I want to say? Cause it's going to change, you know? I mean, and when I first did the American soldier, I had Shakespeare in it. And, um, as I remember, I did it for my, I did it for some really big people. I don't know if you've, if you've heard Playwright Horizons, but Playwright Horizons is this big off-Broadway house in Manhattan. It's kind of like an almost a Broadway house. And I knew the, uh, one of the, 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 not the, the board members and he came to the play and he loved it. You know, he was like, man, I think what you're doing is really interesting. This is 2013, 2014, did it some bullshit studio in Manhattan. He's like, you know, but I think you may want to get rid of the Shakespeare. It doesn't really work. Like it's, it takes me out of what you're doing. Like I'm with you, you're doing all these great, you know, characters and then boom, Shakespeare comes at me and it's like, what? And so you'll get that kind of feedback when you first yeah. do it, you know, you're like, whatever it is you're doing, they're like, that's really good. But when you go in this direction, I, I don't get it. You know, this thing you have to listen to them. And then the other advice I would give you is do it multiple times. You know, a, a, a playwright gave me a really good piece of advice. When I perform at the fringe, I did really good in the reviews, but I kept getting this one character, kept getting the same review. It just over and over, I, it, it kept it, it kept getting doxxed. Like they didn't like it, what I was saying. I, I did this thing where, and my whole intention was to talk about how you're away from women. And I got that out of World War One. So I would say the word titties in this one character all the time and breast and none of the reviewers got it. And so but I liked the line, and and a lot of my characters they would refer to women with breasts. But uh, it was mainly because I wanted to show the, you know, the, the I'm losing the word, but this this connection that when you're a boy being separated from a woman, you know, that was my idea, you know, holding to a woman, you know, there's something very different between a man and a woman with breasts and holding. You know, and I wanted to give that connection when you're off the war in the trenches in World War One, you do anything to hold a woman again, you know, and you do when you're off in Afghanistan, the smell of a woman. You miss this just the smell of a woman. So that was where I was going at, you know, this really, you know, primate feeling, but that no one was getting it. And so the playwright said, Look, you don't have to listen to the playwrights, I mean to the reviewers. Um, but 
if they're all saying the same thing, you may want to listen to what they're saying to adjust. Doesn't mean you have to go that direction, but there is something. And so it was really good advice because I changed it. Uh, I did. And I said, and I kept getting the same note, you know, and I kept getting the same review. They would love it, love it. And then they'd say, you know, it's really, you know, he's really ridiculous when he goes in this direction. Um, and so not that you want to listen to reviews, but if, if you do it three, four times and people give you the same note, take that in, right? Take that in as an artist. Now you're an artist, right? And you take that in and you say, okay, they're not getting this. I got to go in a different direction. Uh, oh. And so that would be another piece of advice that I would give you. Start small, take the advice, make sure you have your fundamentals and commit physically. Um, enjoy the suck. If really just enjoy the suck because you're going to suck. I'm going to promise yeah. you right now you're going to suck. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like going from, uh, you know, a pretty well-developed play after six years back to this shit again. It's like, oh, my God. But, you know. And that's right. the process too, brother. I mean, that's always the process, right? To keep yeah. went back and forth, you know. And and, yeah. and so, so I guess what's next is for you to get this one-man show up, you know. I mean, I would really love for us to somehow find a way to do a play, both of our plays together, like on a, on a let's play. let's commit to the, let's commit to trying to do that at twenty four. You know, yeah. Oh, I mean, big shit, man. It fly, it comes by fast, man. I mean, I already have three bookings. Yeah, I mean, this year it was really busy, so I'm gonna. Even if we book in twenty four and we do it in twenty five, like you know, but yeah. let's just, let's try to get intentional about it this year. You're in Tampa, right? Yeah, you're in Tampa. Yeah, I mean. It would do great in Tampa, Sarasota. You're not far from Sarasota. Oh, not at all. Not at all. I mean, well, let's I think I'm going to attend to my folks. I think you probably got a bolt too. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you being on here, man. And so, uh, love what you're doing. Yeah, you too, man. It was great to finally talk to you because I don't think I've ever really had a long conversation. Like yeah, yeah. And it won't be the last time. Uh, I'll be, I'll be reaching out to you, and uh, if I can do any, I can't wait to see your show, man. I'll keep you posted. Hey, keep me posted, man. All my best to you and your family, brother. All right, man. Let's wrap it up, man. Thanks, man. And have, happy holidays and have a good new year, brother. Thank you for listening to the American Soldier podcast. If you liked this episode, please leave a review. And if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, please subscribe to the channel. And to every veteran and to every military family, I thank you for your service and your incredible sacrifice to this nation.